Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Okay, today, Dressed listeners, we are once again doing a bit of time travel and also simultaneously fulfilling more than one of your requests for an episode on the fashions of the Tudor court. And we are talking King Henry VIII, all of his six wives, Henry's daughter, Queen Elizabeth I, who, Cass, I would argue, kind of still remains a fashion icon today. For sure. Despite the fact that she died more than (laughs) 400 years ago. (laughs) So I'm curious, were you a fan of the Tudors when it was on TV? And what is your professional opinion as a customer <laughs> as to the costumes? You know, I think I have to go back and watch it because I actually only ever watched a few of the episodes. But I will say I was super enthralled because of the portrayal of Sir Thomas More, who, of course, was, you know, kind of King Henry VIII's right-hand man. He was a really staunch Catholic. And then they had this huge rift when Henry, you know, wanted to get a divorce and he was executed. But um, one of my favorite, favorite portraits is of Thomas More in the Frick Collection in New York. Have you seen that, April? Yes. It's by Hans Holbein. It's the most incredibly beautiful detailed depiction of fabric that I've ever seen in any portrait ever. It's like you can feel the rich red velvet of Thomas More's shirt. And so it's one of my absolute favorite portraits. So I was really, you know, kind of interested to see how the costumes would translate into the TV show. I would say those details were lost. But, you know, I am no authority on 16th century fashion or dress. So we will leave that to today's guest, who is one of the leading authorities on the subject of Tudor style. And that's Ellery Lynn, who joins us all the way from London She is curator of the Royal Ceremonial Dress Collection at the Historic Royal Palaces. And in addition to working with their wonderful collection of fashion and textiles belonging to, you know, royal persons from throughout history, she's also written two books uh, specifically about the Tudor era, Tudor fashion, and Tudor textiles. Those are the names of the two books. And I mean, we are so thrilled to have her join us today. Ellery, welcome to Dress. 
Ellery, thank you so much for joining us today on Dressed. Um, huge fan of your Tudor book. It was fascinating. I actually read it twice. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Just because there's so much detail um, and like really, really fascinating information. And I knew a bit about this period because I do teach costume history, but I learned, learned so much. So um, before we get to all of the fabulous fashions today, I'm kind of hoping that we could do like a very brief history refresher in terms of like how and when did the Tudor dynasty rise to power? And so what I'm trying to get at is what time frame are we going to be talking about today? Sure. Well, um, the time span basically runs from 1485 to 1603. And it goes from the time when Henry VII, Henry Tudor, who became Henry VII, beat the last Plantagenet king, Richard III, at the Battle of Bosworth to become Henry VII. And that battle basically put an end to the Wars of the Roses, which was this Mm -hmm. great dynastic civil war in England in the 15th century. And Henry VII uh, had two sons, one of whom became Henry VIII, um, he of the six wives. Of course. I mean, famously had many problems with getting himself a son and heir. But uh, all three of his children ruled. So um, his son, Edward, his uh, daughter, Mary, who became Mary I, and of course, Elizabeth, who became Elizabeth I and became the great virgin queen and is still, uh, I think she still ranks as sort of, you know, the most popular or the most influential monarch in history in so many questionnaires and uh, reviews of history. So really an incredibly epic family dynasty and covering such an incredible time through history as well, particularly from a dress perspective, as we're looking at, because really what we're looking at here is the transition from the Middle Ages into the Renaissance proper with all that that brings. Absolutely. And we are going to be talking about some of these very specific monarchs and some of their clothes um, as we move forward. I'm sure that many of our listeners will already be a bit familiar with exactly how tumultuous kind of claiming and then also maintaining the English throne was during this period. So I'm curious, how did this concept of competitive magnificence, as you say, play out in the power structures at the English court? Well, I think it's really important to say that uh, I know on, on this podcast it won't be it won't be the case, but often dress is seen as something frivolous, something extra to the kind of substantive things that are happening. But at the period we're looking at now, the opposite was true. It was considered that outward magnificence was inward virtue made tangible. So basically, the more virtuous and worthy you were to be monarch, the more magnificent you would look. And certainly, we know that uh, Henry VI, who um, was one of the unfortunate monarchs deposed in the Wars of the Roses, he basically didn't dress the part. He dressed in sort of, you know, rather poor looking rags or, well, not rags, but, you know, kind of poor looking garb, rags relative to, to what was expected. And there was a contemporary eyewitness who said, he, you know, he, he doesn't uh, look worthy and therefore cannot command the affections of his people. So it really was quite important to project that status of kingship 
um, to dress well. And of course, as with everything in fashion, once you have that idea, you know, as as Henry VIII wanted to be a powerful monarch and wanted to compete with his fellow um, counterparts on the European stage, you know, he spent a lot of money on his wardrobe to make sure that he was considered the most worthy, the most wonderful, the most handsome um, prince in Europe. Yeah, and and some of the sums outlaid by royal households were staggering at this time. Yeah, and you know in your book that um, Edward the Fourth spent an estimated what would now today be something like between five and six million pounds a year, and and so when we're saying clothing the royal household. Who are we talking about that time? Was it just like the immediate like family of the blood or are we talking about servants here as well? Yeah, we're talking about servants. We're talking of of several hundred people at any one time. So obviously the uh, king um, and queen and their immediate family are dressed in the finest and most sumptuous textiles, but the king is also responsible for um, granting livery. So that's basically paying for the uniform for his guards, his musicians, the people who look after his horses, um, all of the the royal officials at court. And that's part, all part and parcel of creating that incredible, magnificent appearance. And it was, this is, it was very important. This is the stuff that was written about in letters back and forth to ambassadors all across Europe is what were they wearing? How were they dressed? Were they in the, you know, were they in the finest fabrics? Were the fabrics well kept? Because it allowed people to gauge the wealth and status of the court. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a sort of a, a good glimpse into the financial stability and the power of the people in charge. And um, actually, I mean, one of the things that is really interesting is that Henry VII, the first Tudor king, is often considered um, a bit of a miser, Um, you know, kind of thought of as a bit of a penny pincher. But actually, he spent lavishly on his clothes Um, and particularly in times of threat, when his throne was being threatened by rival claimants. Mm -hmm. You can see the spikes in his expenditure um, as he spends more on the clothes to maintain that appearance of um, magnificence and royalty. And and it's very sad that very few of these garments from this period survive intact today. Why is this? Because it's not simply about their age or or wear. No, that's right. Um, so as you said, I've I've written a book, Tudor Fashion, and now Tudor Textiles as well. And um, really, the reason for writing those books was, in a way, to give you know our visitors to historic world palaces and our audience an answer to the question, because I work at Hampton Court Palace, which is one of the main stages of the Tudor dynasty, I get often a lot of people saying, can I come and see the wardrobe of Anne Boleyn or may I see the wardrobe of Elizabeth I? (laughs) It's really my sad, sad duty to say, you can't, it doesn't exist. So that was one of the purposes for writing the book. But yeah, as you say, very little of it survives, which is really sad. And There are many reasons for that. So we know from the inventories that the Tudor wardrobe was incredibly sumptuous and so costly that it was just par for the course. It was just common practice that clothing and textiles would get reused. Mm -hmm. So the Stuart dynasty, who who, um, came after the Tudors, probably used quite a lot of, of their clothing. But then there's also the English Civil War that happened in the middle of the 17th century. And um, Oliver Cromwell, 
held a, a Commonwealth sale, as it's called, where he basically sold off all of the royal goods. And so we know that a large percentage of the Tudor wardrobe was actually sold. Oh, wow possibly destroyed. And in fact, we know that some people who bought some of the, the two, uh, well, some of the royal clothing, we know one of them was a, a goldsmith, which means that the, a lot of those clothes were probably burnt to retrieve the gold and silver bullion content from the, from the textiles. And even if they'd have survived that, the storage houses for the great um, royal wardrobe were in the middle of the city of London. And so then they had to contend with the Great Fire of London in 1666, which completely destroyed them. Um, so they had, you know, the, the, the clothes of the Tudors had a lot to contend with. But really, the prime suspects in all of this, probably the Tudors themselves, because they were great gift givers. Mm -hmm. It was considered a very princely and kind of noble, charitable virtue to give lots of clothes away. So, so that's probably what they did. So, you know, the clothes of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I are probably, you know, now kind of in stately homes up and down the English countryside, but the provenance is lost is right. the thing. So right. um, they, they probably survive somewhere, but, um, but yeah, the provenance is difficult to prove. Well, and, and, you know, oftentimes working backwards as a historian, because of this fact, because you don't have the the provenance attached to these items, you know, a lot of times what we have to go to is written descriptions of the era and also paintings and portraiture. But that does in and of itself kind of pose some challenges for how we understand these things today when we don't actually get to really see the object and know for sure that it, it did belong to this person. What are some of those challenges? Well, that's a, it's a really good point to make that, you know, actually, you know, as, as historians studying dress from the Tudor period, um, we have to go to other sources. And as you say, there's written documents and they very, you know, they're very descriptive, but you can only guess really at, at what they're trying to say. There is also some kind of, uh, you know, effigies in tombs and, and things like that in churches. But paintings are a really, obviously, incredibly rich resource for us. I think that the textiles depicted in paintings of this time are a really wonderful resource mm -hmm. for us to see because textiles were so valued in the 16th century because their intrinsic value, you know, the, the people sitting for the portraits really wanted to show off. So you get a really great idea of the textiles in these things. Which is why they were gifted later. That, absolutely. And even even lengths of cloth were given as like luxury gifts too as well. Yeah, we're so used today to the idea of disposable fashion, but that was really anathema in Tudor period because of the value. You would never think of just, you know, kind of throwing it away mm -hmm. or, or even keeping it. You would constantly be reusing and refashioning and repurposing it. But as you say, the, the challenges of using those sources are are many because you don't understand the mechanics of the dress. Mm -hmm. For a start, you never really see the back of the clothes in portraits. So you don't really kind of understand how they fit together. Um, and really, that's why experimental history is so important. So that's, um, uh, you know, a really important aspect of trying to reconstruct our understanding of Tudor dress. I'm really fortunate um, at Hampton Court Palace, uh, over many years, I've worked with a wonderful um, company called Past Pleasures, who reconstruct Tudor and historic dress based on, you know, sources, but also just trying to figure out how it works together. Is Does it work? Is it viable? Um, so that's a really important part of what we do. 
obviously it goes without saying that all clothing was made by hand at this time. And that also includes textiles, which you've also written a book on specifically about Tudor textiles, as you mentioned. And this period has some really specific kind of aesthetic hallmarks that I'm kind of hoping we can talk about. I mean, we could go on and on and on about this for a really yeah. long time. But yeah, we could. <laughs> um, I'm hoping maybe you could give us the inside scoop on slashing. You know, what was slashing? Why was this happening? I think when people roll into a museum and they see a portrait, they, they already know what this is. And it's very distinctive of that period. But why was this so immensely fashionable at the time? Yeah, you're right. I think people would recognize it. They would. It's basically where you see um, another kind of fabric through the top fabric. So it's a it's a technique where you you create sort of decorative little holes or slashes in the outer fabric through which you can see um, another fabric, usually of a contrasting color. Mm-hmm. And really, it's all about conspicuous consumption. So it's all about demonstrating that. You're so wealthy and important. You can afford this incredible doublet, but you can also afford, you know, even even kind of, you know, as lovely fabric to go underneath it. So it's all about status and demonstrating your wealth, really. So, yeah, there were kind of incredible visual and aesthetic decorative techniques that, you know, that allowed you to kind of show that off. And the slashing is, is definitely one where you see the fabric underneath. Yeah. Um, also in your book, I think it's on the cover, there's a, an incredible image of a doublet that has been pierced and it's leather, which kind of functions in the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you're right. I mean, that's an interesting one because actually that's a, there's a leather jerkin that is perhaps a little bit more functional. That's probably for, you know, somebody from, you know, the middling classes rather mm-hmm. than the upper echelons of society but what's interesting is they're using the same techniques to try and emulate the fashion of the aristocracy so um you know the aristocracy was really leading um all of those kind of aesthetics and visual traits and when it comes to thinking of the Tudor period my mind like automatically besides slashing kind of wanders to thinking about embroidery because they were incredibly fond of using embroidery on their garments. Are there any special techniques from this time or particular motifs that were favored that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, so absolutely. So embroidery is a really important aspect of um, Tudor decoration, much less so at the start of the Tudor period. So when Henry VII was ruling at the end of the 15th century, the beginning of the 16th century, the predominant style was quite plain so there was lots of uh, use of domestic fine wool Mm -hmm. and the decoration really came in the form of sort of edging so embroidery or braids used at the hems and cuffs and collars of of outfits but that really changes completely um in the reign of henry the seventh's granddaughter elizabeth the first so um, embroidery became so fashionable during her reign. Um, and there are lots of reasons for that. I mean, one of my personal theories is that because Elizabeth was a woman and would have been brought up and trained in the art of embroidery herself, that her ladies and her court became much more fluent in the language of embroidery. It became a bit more popular as a sort of language to communicate with her as a queen um, and a woman. 
I could talk about that all day. <laughs> but um, certainly the, the sorts of motifs that you're seeing during that time um, are coming directly from printed botanical books and mm. new printed books. Because, of course, this is the time when uh, the printed book was quite a new thing. It was the status symbol to own a book. And for the first time, you're seeing books about domestic things rather than just religious treaties. So you're seeing botanicals and herbals and embroidery pattern books or pattern books for um, jewellery and things like that. And so it became a mark of scholarship to be able to copy from these books and to turn them into some other kind of decorative art form, um, particularly embroidery. So often you'll see the same sorts of things appearing in embroidery of this time. So it's often things like little strawberries or, you know, lots of English flowers like daffodils or foxgloves or peas and, and very kind of rural scenes that are all built around this idea of nature and the whole purpose behind that is that they're showing how scholarly they are because they're taking it from books but also it's kind of showing it's that right showing the renaissance idea that they are um somehow categorizing the natural world and kind of showing some mastery over it really so it's mastery over nature also too we see a lot of painted textiles as well not just embroidery do we see the same motifs in the painted textiles as the embroidered ones Yes. Yeah, yeah, we do. There was, um, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking particularly there's an incredible painting of Elizabeth I at Hardwick Hall in the north of England. And your listeners might be familiar with it because Elizabeth is depicted standing wearing this incredible skirt covered in motifs, like I just mentioned, you know, motifs of, of the natural world. Um, also different symbols that were very popular at the time as well, like um, fish and spires and stars and spiders, all of these sorts of um, popular symbols. Um, and there is a theory that that was perhaps a painted skirt mm -hmm. um, rather than an embroidered skirt. So there were definitely similarities between the two decorative forms um there's also a there's also a, a, a sort of a pl very plausible theory that the uh, wonderful gown that elizabeth wears in the rainbow portrait oh, which yes. is covered in eyes and ears um was actually a painted fabric that it isn't just a, you know an, a, a sort of artistic license on the part of the painter that it was a real garment mm -hmm. but that it was painted and they uh, because there is reference at the time to what they called stained textiles and what they mean ah. by that is painted textiles so it was probably much more of a prevalent art form than we realize how how is she using that sort of symbolism particularly in that portrait which is really really fascinating you know it almost looks surrealist like her dress has eyes and, and ears all over it it's, it's kind of crazy but in a fabulous sort of way I mean absolutely in a fabulous sort of way and um symbolism was huge at the Elizabethan court. They loved symbols and games and puzzles and codes. It was a, it was a language that they were all at court very literate in. Um, and particularly because in uh, 1586, a book came out um, by Geoffrey Whitney called A Choice of Emblems, which was basically a dictionary to symbols. So, um, you know, an arrow would uh, represent martial fidelity, um, a spire or a rainbow would represent the celestial. So it became a sort of intellectual puzzle to keep using these symbols. So if you apply those meanings to the rainbow portrait, it all becomes quite clear. So the reason it's called the rainbow portrait is she's holding in her hand a rainbow. 
Um, so that means she has mastery over the celestial. So, you know, implying straight away that she is divine. There are eyes and ears all over her gown, which shows that she sees and hears all. So, you know, beware courtiers. She's, she knows what you're up to. Yes. <laughs> um, she's covered in pearls and that was a symbol of purity. So she's really, you know, stating her claim as the Virgin Queen. Also, of course, she's wearing a bodice, which is covered in embroidered flowers. And like I said, that's not a sort of just a pretty, pretty thing. She is showing that she has access to books and learning and scholarship. This is her way of saying that she has mastery over nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really is that whole painting and so many portraits of her from that time are really all about representing her as this divine, all-powerful being. Yeah, I I kind of always say like she crafted some sort of an otherworldly appearance for herself, even more so perhaps than some of the monarchs who preceded her. I'm hoping we can go back to one really quickly, um, which is, of course, her father, Henry VIII. Um, I think most of our listeners will be well familiar with his story. But um, what would getting dressed for him for just a normal day kind of look like? What is that process? What are all these crazy layers that we're talking about? And also, too, what sort of materials are we talking about? Well, it's an incredibly complicated process, and there are many, many layers. So it is, you know, it's a lengthy and complicated process. So all of his clothes are brought up from um, the wardrobe within, and the wardrobe is not a, a you know, a, an item of furniture. At the time, it was a room. So the, the, it was brought up from the wardrobe in the palace. Um, his clothes for the day were wrapped in linen and they were brought up and they were handed in a chain along a line of servants going from the servant who got the clothing to up in the hierarchy to the most important person who was going to get Henry dressed. And he had six gentlemen of the bedchamber to help him get dressed. So these things would arrive wrapped in linen and his gentlemen would get him dressed. Basically, he would stand there you know, to be dressed. Mm-hmm. It was a very ritualized process. So uh, the, his first layer is a, a linen shirt, which at the time was an item of underwear. So it protects his his clothes from his sweat, but it also protects his body from the coarse um, outer fabrics. And then he puts on a doublet and hose, which might be um, a fine wool or silk. And this is sort of almost like a two-piece suit. So there's a doublet and and the hose are sort of like, you know, his his trousers really, but they would, they, you know, they were, were short. They wouldn't go all the way to his ankle. They were coming usually to the knee. Um, of course, there's the famous cod piece, which yes. forms part of those hose, <laughs> um, over which then he's going to be wearing a, a sort of coat really, uh, which has you know, sort of fairly long skirts and then a gown which goes over that as well and of increasingly valuable textiles. So Henry was generally wearing fine linen from the low countries, from the Netherlands, called Holland. Um, And he was wearing the very finest imported silks. So silks imported from Italy um, or even further afield via Italy. He was wearing the finest furs. He was wearing the finest velvets. Um, and as you say, the finest embroidery and um, and the finest jewels. I mean, there were, there were descriptions of his jewelry talking about diamonds as large as eggs and things like that. <laughs> so he's all about... Uh, showing off. More is more. <laughs> more is more, absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, I, absolutely. More is more as far as Henry is concerned. And this is the part where if we don't talk a little bit more about the cod piece, we're going to have a whole bunch of people like sending us <laughs> messages about it. Sure. And, and we already have done a mini-sode, um, which was a very brief overview of the cod piece. But what place did this particular garment have, or I guess maybe you might not even call it accessory. I don't, I don't know. It could go either way, maybe. But what place did the cod piece have in the Tudor court? It's a really interesting one, isn't it? Actually, um, you don't see it very much in, I mean, you don't see it in Elizabeth's court. It's its definitely something that is very fashionable at the court of Henry VIII. So there's the sort of technical background to it is that a, a man's hose would have a sort of little flap at the front for access, you know, so they could go to the loo um, and so on. But that, that flap sort of developed and became um, exaggerated. And so in the court of Henry VIII, it becomes a very decorative thing. So it becomes stuffed with wool and cork and and becomes this incredible appendage. And, you know, they're very aware of, of, you know, how kind of slightly ridiculous it is in a way, because in pageants and plays, um, some of the courtiers would wear even more exaggerated cod pieces, which they would give names. You know, they would call it desire or, you know, kind of, you know, kind of slightly bawdy names. But I mean, it's particularly interesting, isn't it, that it was very fashionable at a time when Henry VIII was really struggling to produce a male heir. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a very psychological thing. You know, he's he's desperate to prove his virility, his masculinity and his manhood. Um, and, you know, and, and this is the time that the cod piece is hugely fashionable and you can't miss it in portraits of no. him, can you? <laughs> I mean, it's it's front and center. So, you know, I don't I don't think it takes, um, you know, a trained psychologist to see that there might be something to that. <laughs> dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives. But what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. 
And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The women of the Tudor court obviously did not wear cod pieces, but they themselves were wearing more than a few peculiar garments. What would have getting dressed look like for one of Henry's oh-so-many wives? There were six, six, there right? Were six, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so getting dressed for uh, one of Henry's wives was also a very complicated process. And again, she would have ladies who would help her get dressed. Again, the base layer for her is um, linen. Um, So she would be wearing a linen shift, which is basically like a very long petticoat um, that she would wear, uh, over which she would wear a kirtle, which is um, it could be in two pieces, like a little sort of bodice top um, with, with lacing down the front and a skirt, or sometimes that could be a, a one piece dress. But that really served as a base for lots of the sort of decorative elements that she would wear. So over the front of that um, skirt would be pinned uh, a really fabulous um, forepart, which is essentially like a fake skirt of the most costly fabrics. And then she would have uh, detachable sleeves, which would also be pinned in place, um, often in the same fabric as the skirt. So she sort of, you know, was accessorized. And then over that, she would wear what was uh, called a French gown, which is essentially like a sort of mantle or a coat, mm-hmm. um, a gown that she would put on over that um, of, you know, beautiful fabrics. Um, and it would be open at the front so that you could see that beautiful um, skirt fabric and her you'd you'd also be able to see the detachable sleeves Um, and to cover up the lacing at the front um, they'd wear something called a placard which is sort of like a fake front Mm -hmm. like a little sort of uh, you know a kind of little fake bodice that would be pinned in place and the pins are very important because this was a major way that clothing was fashioned uh, fastened together at the time so thing you all of these different layers were pinned in place Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the wonderful things about Hampton Court and the Tower of London, which are two of the palaces that we look after at Historic Royal Palaces, um, is the amount of pins in the archaeological (laughs) record. Um, And there there are hundreds of thousands of them. So they must have gone about shedding these pins as they walked, you know, from different rooms. And they, you know, they really vary in status and style from very plain lead and pewter ones right up to costly silver ones with jewels on the top. So 
you know, a really sort of incredible record of, of pins. That's amazing. And, and we also see that um, in Netherlandish dress um, from kind of around the same time with the, the costly veil pins um, that, they were, that they were wearing as well. Yeah, and the same thing for um, French and English hoods. So very comparable, yeah. And speaking of hoods, what role did those play in their ensembles? Because that comes around around the time of Henry VIII, right? It does, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if you think of portraits of Elizabeth of York, now she was the queen, Henry VII's queen, um, and you see um, her wearing these very long English hoods. So the English hood is sort of like a, a bonnet with a triangular front and these very long lappets which go down the front. So that was a very traditional style and a style that was worn by Catherine of Aragon. Famously, Anne Boleyn brought in the French hood, yes. um, which was very risque and fashionable from the French court where she had spent many years. And the French hood was was much more refined because it sort of took on the shape of the, the head. It wasn't this triangular bonnet and sat back a bit further on the head so that you could see more of the hair. So it was much more elegant and considered risque. And in fact, when Jane Seymour became queen, so she's the she's queen number three, wife number three, who um, became queen after the execution of Anne Boleyn, she banned the French hood mm-hmm. um, and reverted to the English hood. So this was a way of sort of getting rid of the risque remnants of <laughs> Anne Boleyn's reign. So they were very important, very political too. Mm-hmm. And they, by the time that Elizabeth comes into power, they'd kind of fallen out of use, fallen out of fashion. Yeah, yeah, they had. And the reason for that is because Elizabeth as a virgin and as a queen, um, was entitled to not wear a hood. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, you know, it was a, a particular status thing that she could lay claim to, which was to oh. wear her hair down or uncovered, um, which she did. And she, obviously she did so to exert her status as both, as both queen and a virgin. And, you know, just gradually that became the fashion at court. Mm-hmm. And also speaking of things that she is identified with, can we talk about ruffs here for a second? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is a ruff? How did they kind of evolve to be really kind of like the apex of that garment at this time when she wore them? Yeah, I mean, I think this is really interesting. I think when you think of Henry VIII, you think of that, you know, his incredible girth, right? That width of him in the portraits you see. Um, and, it, you know, he, he took up space as king. Um, and even, you know, kind of his skinny courtiers would wear padded jackets and doublets and gowns to try and emulate his width. So he took up a lot of physical space. And I think it's really interesting that during the reign of Elizabeth, you see the male silhouette become much more skinny and slender. Mm-hmm. So they take up less, less space, but she takes up a huge amount of space. So she's wearing these incredible farthingales that kind of, you know, kind of come out to the side and, you know, they, they dominate the space. And these incredible ruffs, which are these lace collars worn around her neck. And, you know, this there's technological innovations happening there and discoveries. The reason that those clothes were, were able to stand out in that way was because of the great voyages of discovery across the Atlantic. So those great voyages were discovering whale fisheries mm-hmm. um, and bringing back for the first time copious amounts of whalebone. So suddenly you have this incredible supportive material that enables the clothing to stick out in that way and also enables corsetry. Mm-hmm. 
you know, in kind of large numbers for the first time. But the roughs, you know, so you would have these kind of supporting structures underneath the roughs. But yeah, the roughs are quite incredible. So from the 1560s onwards, they basically get bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. And they're a fantastic way of dating portraiture. You basically, you know, how how big is the rough? You can date from that. Um, but Elizabeth I really did champion that. She was one of the first, well, she was the first person in, in the records that we know who had her own um, starcher because you needed to starch the roughs to, to kind of give them the shape. And there's a lot of social history involved there too because it was a technique that was brought in from the Netherlands and lots of refugees were bringing that in at that time because of the Catholic persecution of the Protestants in the Netherlands in the 1560s. So it sort of happened a little bit by accident, but obviously I think became a really important way that Elizabeth marked her territory. Ellery, thank you so much for joining us today all the way from London. And actually in a couple of days from now, as April mentioned, you are going to get part two of this episode on Thursday. There is oh so much more to say on the topic. Mm-hmm. And listen, do yourself a favor right now. Google the rainbow portrait of Queen Elizabeth and check out her ensemble because, you know, it has those incredible spray of ears and eyes that are scattered all across the ground. As you said, April, it's simply surreal. Yes, it's it's one of my favorite portraits of her. And if you see the full portrait, you kind of have to look a little bit closely because it's on the kind of yellow-orange portion of her dress. But those little crescent shapes all over are actually eyes and ears, which is so just cool. crazy. <laughs> um, and also, just let me tease our part two, which will air on Thursday, because let's just say we might get into some of the more personal aspects of Tudor fashion, such as grooming and hygiene. But um, for now, that does it for us today. Until Thursday, may you consider the sartorial splendor residing in your closet next time you get dressed. We, of course, love hearing from you. So please, if you'd like to submit a query for a future Fashion History Mystery mini-sode, you can email us at dress at iheartmedia.com or you can DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast. This is where we publish images for each week's episode. And also, of course, follow the Royal Ceremonial Dress Collection and the Historic Royal Palaces at Historic Royal Palaces on Insta. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. We will catch you on Thursday for part two. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. 